Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following programme contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. This session, the gala showcase featuring Chris Tees, Marcus Suzak, Tina Makareti, John Boyne, Clementine Ford and Akala with MC Michelle A. Court, was supported by the New Zealand Book Council and the University of Otago Centre for the Book. Marcus Suzak and Akala featured in association with the Auckland Writers' Festival. Enjoy. Kia ora koutou. Uh, kia ora koutou. Ko Claire Finlayson ahau. Ko o te kaitohu hōtaka o te taiopinga o ngā kaituhituhi me ngai ka kaipānui or Otipoti. Kia ora everyone, I'm Claire Finlayson. I'm the Programme Director for the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. No mai kia koutou, me nga... Is that better? Oh. No mai kia koutou... Do me to start again? Oh. Are you sure? So was that start again or was that not start again? I'm confused now. Kia ora koutou. Ko Claire Finlayson ahau. Ko au te kaitohu hōtaka o te taiopenga o ngā kai tuhituhi me ngā kai pānui o Otipoti. Kia ora all, I'm Claire Finlayson. I'm the Programme Director for the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. Uh, no mai kia koutou me ngā mihi mahana ki enei manuhiri miharo. Um, welcome to you all and warmest greetings to these amazing guests. And they're all sitting here on the front row uh, looking very distracting. Um, I'd just like to say to them, um, Akala, Clementine Ford, Chris Tees, Marcus Suzak, Tina Makareti, oh, Aaron, Aaron Hawkins, John Boyne, <laughs> and Michelle Acourt. Um, we're just really thrilled to have you here. So thank you for coming to our wee southern corner um, for this lovely event. Um, Um, Now I'm just going to do a bit of very swift but very heartfelt thanking. Um, As a non-profit organisation, we have to lean very heavily on funders and sponsors. Um, So to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust, the Lion Foundation, and to our major sponsors, the University Bookshop, Brand Aid, the Otago Daily Times, Otago University Press, NHNZ, Galloway Cook Allen, J.W. Smeaton, Marks and Worth, Otago Polytech, Friends of the Library, and Phantom Bill Stickers. Um, without them and our other supporters, we'd just be a scribbled wish list sitting inertly on a page. So thank you for all your support. And also, big thanks to the New Zealand Book Council. Um, they partnered with us for this event and 
Um, one of their big areas of concern is reading in the age of screens, which is how we arrived at the distracted theme. Um, and we also had support from the Centre for the Book at the University of Otago. Um, and thanks to the Auckland Writers' Festival for sharing Marcus Suzak and Akala with us, and to Culture Island for supporting John Boyne's visit. And lastly, to our festival team, we're petite but hard-working. Uh, Laura Hewson, Alex Bly, Bridget Shawman, Helen Spears, Annie Villiers, Nikki Page, Vanessa Manhire and Catherine Quill, and to our volunteers. Thank you for your good mahi and oomph. Now, the very excellent Michelle Acourt is going to be kicking things off in a minute, but before she does, I'm going to invite um, Councillor Aaron Hawkins to come up and speak on behalf of Dunedin City. Kia ora. Kia ora koutou, ka mi nui kia koutou, kia ora. Uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging our local uh, runaka at Pukataraki, uh, uh, Moiraki and Otako as, uh, as mana whenua of, of this land that we call Ōtapoti Dunedin. And my name is Aaron Hawkins, I ended up in the front row by accident apparently, um, so apologies clear uh, for that. Um, Welcome to the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival, but most importantly, I guess, welcome also to uh, Toy 2, Otago Settlers Museum, which is an appropriate place for us to celebrate uh, the opening of this event because it is the home to so many of our stories uh, as a a city and as a community. Um, We're very proud uh, in Dunedin of our status as a UNESCO city of literature, uh, but it is meaningless Uh, in and of itself, uh, without writers and readers constantly breathing new life uh, into it. It's not a museum piece, although I acknowledge we are in a museum. Uh, It's not a medal for the city's literary past, as illustrious as that is, Uh, but it's a commitment ongoing uh, to contemporary work and to the next generation of words and ideas, and that is what this uh, weekend is all about. Uh, words and ideas are tools for us to make. Oh, sorry, I'm, <clears throat> it's been a while. I'm popping my peas. Apologies. Uh, tools for us to make sense of the turbulent times uh, that we live in, whether that's um, dealing with uh, fake news, whether that's parenting for a more peaceful world, whether that's quite literally uh, survival in the wild, or at a more primal level, uh, dealing with people like poets and murderers and rock stars. But above all else, events like this are about uh, community, I think. So this weekend and beyond this weekend, uh, I think the, the wero is for us uh, to read more and talk more and argue more and laugh more and build stronger bonds uh, through a better understanding of each other and the world around us because as Pollyanna-ish as this sounds, and apologies, um, I'm an eternal optimist, I think these are the greatest tools that we have and the greatest hope that we have of collectively getting through uh, whatever this condition is uh, that we're currently uh, dealing with. So thanks again, uh, Claire, and, and your entire team. This is a remarkable event and a remarkable uh, addition to the cultural and community calendar uh, here in Dunedin. So thank you for all of your work. Thanks to everyone who has come from su- quite some distance in some cases to be a part of it. Uh, we really appreciate that. Um, and I hope you all have a productive uh, festival over the next uh, two and a bit days, however long is remaining, depending on how long you stay uh, this evening, uh, I suppose. So on behalf of the city, welcome uh, and uh, kia ora. Thank you.
Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this really spectacular evening. I'm very excited to be here. We're going to hear tonight from six very different writers from different parts of the world, from England, Ireland, Australia, and Aotearoa, and uh, people of different ethnicities. They write poetry, music, novels, essays, Non-fiction, young adult fiction, and film and theatre scripts. Some of them write a combination of those. So different genres, different disciplines, different lives, but they have things in common. For one thing, they are all award-winning and best-selling. They also share the things that all writers do. They know about the tyranny of the blank page, and they will have met the thieves of time. For me, at least, these are the twin demons who work in cahoots with each other. You struggle to find the time to write when apparently somebody needs dinner cut or needs picking up from school or you're supposed to do something to pay the mortgage or someone wants you to talk about writing when you would much rather, you know, write. And so you fantasize about a quiet place where you can spend days in your pajamas drinking tea, never washing, just living inside your own head and finding exciting ways of arranging words in a new and interesting order. But then you find that quiet place and it can be too quiet and you discover that your brain is hungry and would rather eat than cook and you waste a whole day reading nonsense or worse, you read something so brilliant you decide there's no point in ever writing anything yourself because A, you have nothing as wonderful to say and B, you'll never be as good at saying it as that. And our opportunities for distraction have grown exponentially in recent times, not just Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, endless emails, all of those things, but the actual tool that most of us use to write also contains, at the click of a mouse, pretty much every book, every article, every video, all the poems and songs that exist in the world. It's amazing that really any of us get anything done at all. Distractions, of course, aren't all bad. Sometimes you find the thing you're looking for, that idea to fill the blank page, when you stop looking for it and focus elsewhere. Load the washing machine. Take a shower if you have to. Chop some onions. Go for a drive. Look away and suddenly you will see it. Plus, we can do some good things when we procrastinate. If I want to have a very clean house on Thursday, all I need is a deadline on Friday. (laughs) 
So we have our six writers to tell us about distraction in whatever way they want, what they do to guard their creative spaces, but maybe also where they wander off to to find the things that they need, the rabbit holes they might fall down and what they might bring back. So let's begin tonight with a poet. I always find that evenings start best if you start with a poet. So Chris Tease was born and raised in Lower Hutt and now lives in Wellington. Big move. Uh, his, his first book of poetry, How to Be Dead in a Year of Snakes, took readers back to a shocking murder committed more than 100 years ago. And it won the Jesse Mackay Award at the 2016 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. And his second book, He's So Mask, took a dive into the worlds of hyper-masculine romanticism, and it involved dancing alone in nightclubs. Both The Herald and The Spin-Off listed it as one of the best books of 2018. Chris is also an actor, and he studied film and English literature at Victoria, and he has the most spectacular range of jackets. To meet Chris and one of his jackets, please welcome him to the stage, Chris Tease. Well, there's a lot of people, Kia ora. <laughs> uh, Thank you, Michelle, and thank you so much to the festival for um, bringing me down to Dunedin. It's uh, such a pleasure to be here and to be a part of this uh, evening um, alongside such wonderful writers. Um, I'm going to read three poems for you tonight. I've written something especially for tonight, uh, but I'm going to actually start with two poems from my book, Hiso Mask, uh, which uh, guests delve into the world of distraction and films. Um, And this first poem is called Pay No Attention to That Man Behind the Curtain. And uh, that's the line that the Wizard of Oz says when Dorothy and co. start to realise that nothing is all it seems. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Dare I dream of fame, yet live my life among cardboard crowds. This stands to be examined, perhaps even crushed, but I can't help myself for wanting to appropriate the air in a balloon or the colour of a baby's flushed cheek for cheap entertainment. I want their ears to want, but they can keep their questions to themselves. They treat my songs with spotlights, but deny them curtains to hide behind. Such songs are tailored for weaker knees. What do you hear now? The wheels of a tornado, the strings of a storm. To veil, to veil, to no avail. I've got enough to reveal between my bars without them bringing an avalanche to swallow my song. Uh, This next one is called uh, MacGuffin. And a MacGuffin is a plot device uh, used to uh, propel a narrative forward. Um, but the best way I've heard it described is it's the thing that the thing or the person that the characters are interested in, but the audience actually doesn't care about. And it's often associated with uh, Alfred Hitchcock films. So this is MacGuffin. To say that the briefcase is pertinent is to ignore the man in the speckled grey suit, slouched by the payphone, moustache ready to turn villain, his concealed gun pressed squarely against his ribcage. You can tell he's a baddie because he doesn't blink and looks straight into the camera like he couldn't give a fuck. To express that the film did not commit to the character's intents is to impose your own logic. Tongue lashing at the masses, not able to turn their eyes to the dirty light tainting the walls of bathroom stalls used for hookups and quick fixes. There, the clinical plink 
of syringes falling to the floor and fluorescent tubes realizing illumination. At this point, we are questioned about our own intent as an audience of willing accomplices. Our eyes dilate. What will it take for us to stop resorting to tradecraft to pull each other into honest dialogue? Some of us rely on our gift of good timing. Our days are hung on it. The rest of us second guess the end. I never walk out on films because I hate to see a story go unfinished. You are more likely to walk, whereas I could never leave you. But there's the door, and I'm told the sky is particularly bright tonight. It only takes a little moonlight to test your commitment to a role. So while I was writing this piece for tonight, um, of course I got distracted. Um, I fell down many internet and Wikipedia holes. Um, I learned a lot about media manipulation techniques um, and the things that magicians do to distract uh, their audiences to pull off their tricks. And then uh, I was distracted by something very real. Um, The events in Christchurch basically derailed um, any progress that I was making on this poem. And I guess all of that uh, ended up uh, in this poem. So this is called The Magician. Every time I turn to see where I should be looking, I see my reflection. There is so much of the world within reach from your desk. Screens within screens and holes within holes. Tails waking dogs and newspapers crying wolf. It's tiny hammers pounding at your skin and not knowing why you wake up every morning covered in bruises. It's a story so vivid you keep repeating it as if it were yours to tell, pulling up your sleeves and showing strangers a new shade of blue. You think you know this story and who is telling it. Don't be surprised when a door slams shut and you find yourself asking, how long has that door been there? My reflection is a magician. He tells me where to look. Inside every poem is a stage with trapdoors. Inside every poem is a smoke machine. Inside every poem is a mirror buried in the volta, and once found and gazed upon, it shows you what you missed as you were following the tip of the wand. The magician tells you where to look, and so you look, because magic doesn't work if you don't follow instructions. But... As a spectator, the trick is to expect everything and nothing at the same time. The trick is to watch the wand while your left hand is behind your back, texting the revelation to your past self, so when you reach the reveal, you have seen the magician's flourish in all its cross-sectioned, exposed, wiring glory. Look over there. A door you've never noticed. A secret way in and out. Anything could be placed before you, undetected. Of course, it's been there the whole time. You've spent your entire life with your body pushed up against the door, but the crowd beating on the other side is louder and demands entertainment. They spend the running time convincing us it's a levitation without wires, and while our eyes are scanning for the slightest quiver, we don't see them set fire to the scenery, the strike of the match disguised by our applause. With so much happening in this world, it's getting harder to resist everything that demands my attention and harder to tell what I unknowingly steal from myself when I fall for another smokescreen. 
overhears shattered glass scattered over the pavement, catching sunlight and begging to be written about. Meanwhile, I've not noticed that the source of this glass is a five-car pile-up complete with blood and sirens and screaming children, but that doesn't stop me from getting on my hands and knees to interrogate each shard. It's a spot-the-difference game where one picture is an earthquake and the other is an upstairs neighbour dragging furniture across hardwood floors at two in the morning. The magician tells me sleep is the biggest distraction of all. There's no joy in surrendering to the screens behind my eyes where everything I believe to be true is a wrong memory, an echo I've been too happy to be swallowed by. In the morning, everything is the same but shifted slightly to the right, and during the night, someone has turned all your books around so their spines are now facing the wall. The whole damn time, there, smoking away. From the wings, both the magician and the audience become the show, passing the matches between them, call and response running in both directions. Can we still call this power? And, if so, how many walls will be left standing when they've extinguished the flames? It's from the wings that I see what haunts me. Ignorance won't save me, no matter how many doors I open and shut just to keep myself busy. My reflection and I want to look away, but the wires snap us back each time. If you are a person of colour, you don't get to live through a national conversation about racism and shame without taking multiple hits to the body. It's like being a prop in your own story and constantly wondering whether someone will pick you up just to acknowledge that you're there. It's screaming fire in a burning building while everyone on Twitter is saying it's not fire but a smoke machine doing what it's been told to do. A blind man doesn't need to see a fire to know the rush of standing in a burning building and if he stands there long enough, he will be taken by the flames. So much debate rests on the cause of the fire, but no one ever wants to talk about the consequences of making the cause the story. Who is telling this story? Well, it depends on whether or not you mention the colour of the bodies they'll pull from the debris. Sometimes we have to tell these stories because the rest of the world is watching the magician disappear an invisible elephant that was never there in the first place. And behind the door you never noticed? A series of doors. That is the story you should be telling. I see my reflection every time I turn to see where I should be looking. Thank you very much. That was amazing. Wow. You set a high bar. Everybody else is terrified now. That was um, fantastic. Chris did a workshop earlier this morning and was at a poetry reading before this session tonight. This is the last we get to see of him at this festival. He scoots off tomorrow to go to be part of Featherston Booktown. But um, that was fantastic. Can we have another round of applause for Chris Tease, please? That's great. All right, our next writer is best-selling Australian novelist Marcus Zusak. Marcus lives in Sydney, but his books live on the New York Times bestseller list, where they've taken up residency for more than a decade. There are six novels, uh, including The Book Thief and most recently Bridge of Clay, which was chosen as best book of 2018, and a huge range of publications from Entertainment Weekly to The Wall Street Journal. You can read Marcus's novels in more than 40 languages, or you can watch 
watch the movie versions of The Book Thief and Bridge of Clay. Marcus says that every morning while it's still dark, he walks two dogs and collects stray thoughts. So to tell us about his distractions, please give a very warm welcome to Marcus Zuzak. Hi everyone, I'm really, I'm so thrilled to be here. I've always wanted to come to Dunedin and uh, I'll be more thrilled in about eight minutes. Chris came down, he looked so happy uh, that it was all over. So, uh, so we'll see how we go. I'm, and I'm willing to be the person on this, this, out of this group that everyone leaves tonight and goes, yeah, everyone's stuck really well to the topic, except that guy. Uh, so I'm sorry if, uh, if that's the case and I apologise in advance. I had a moment of distraction when I was a kid. I was nine years old and I ruined Christmas in 1984 in the Zuzak household. And it was because I had, it was a, a distraction that turned into an obsession where Christmas to me wasn't about presents, it wasn't about spending time with my family, it was about watching the Christmas cartoon specials that were on. There was the little drummer boy, Frosty the Snowman, and the Christmas classic, The Flintstones Christmas. And I wanted to get up and watch those every year. And in 1984, they were gone. They had vanished from Sydney TV screens. And so I thought, they're saving it all for the 24th. They're saving it for Christmas Eve. And so on the 23rd, I set my alarm clock, which I loved. It was white in the shape of a dome or an arch, and it had a little black ribbed section at the back that you just popped up, and, uh, and then when it went off, you pushed it down. Quite a simple thing, really. It had glow-in-the-dark uh, digits and, uh, and hands, and I really loved that alarm clock, and I was so keyed up and, let's say, I'll use the word distracted, from what I really should have been doing, which was making sure that I would get up and turn the alarm clock off. But, you know, when you go somewhere or you've got a big work day, what happens is you wake up before your alarm goes off. And I got up and I went into the lounge room, brown carpet, orange curtains. This was the 80s after all. I can still see the light of that lounge room as I was sitting there and then I watched in horror as diagonally through, you could see to the bedroom that I shared with my brother, my sisters were in the, the bedroom next to it, and I watched my dad, who hadn't had a day off all that year, working to provide for the family. He's walked through, this was going to be his one day off of the year, and of course I had that moment of terror where I just went, oh shit, the alarm clock. I forgot to switch the alarm clock off. And then I watched frozen to the couch as my dad examined the alarm clock as it was going off and I could now hear it. And of course, while I'm at it, can I just say thanks very much to my brother, that useless bastard on the other side could have just for once done something good for me and switched the alarm off, but no, he was snoring through the whole thing. He's, my dad is examining the alarm clock and then I watched in horror as he smashed it to the floor and then went back to bed, all right? And I'm sitting there, I'm going, oh my God, my dad just smashed my alarm clock into 13, as it turned out, 13 pieces. And, uh, and next thing, my mum got out of, I heard her get out of bed and she came through the lounge room in her pink 
dressing gown that was very, it was almost like paper and had Hawaiian flowers on it. I can still see it so clearly as she marched through, didn't look at me. My mum's really gregarious and beautiful and she, uh, and, and she would never not say hello, but she's stormed through there. She's gone out the back. I heard the fly screen door slam. And what she was doing out there, again, I had no idea. It turns out she was smashing the mugs that my dad was getting her for Christmas and had gone on and on about how great these mugs were. And then she came back in through, walked straight past me again, and we had these little tables. And I think these were, this was a worldwide phenomenon, these tables, these little side tables. They were like the Russian dolls of side tables. There was a tiny one, there was a middle-sized one, and there was a bigger one. On top of that was a board game, and it wasn't Monopoly, it was Careers, which was a rip-off of Monopoly. Really good game. And uh, anyway, she's picked up the, Monopoly, uh, the Careers box, and I went, oh, my God, what is she doing? What's going to happen next? She went in. And as it turned out, what she had decided to do in her fury, she's gone in and she just smashed my dad over the head, who had gone back he was asleep with the careers board game and then threw it at him, at which, at which point I did spring to my feet and I ran around into the hallway where my, one of my sisters had gone in. I looked into that bedroom. There was paper money floating around everywhere. And my sister was trying to calm my mum down while then out of the corner of my eye, and this was the surest sign of all that I'd caused a catastrophe, was that my brother and my oldest sister were hugging each other. And I'd never seen that before in my entire life. And I thought, it can't get any worse than this. And so... It all calmed down. There were a lot, a lot more went on, but I've only got eight minutes. So a lot, a lot more went on. My mum went to work. My mum is 84 years old and she still goes to work cleaning people's houses. She's, a, she's like a machine. And uh, she's gone to work. Then this is the great thing about my dad. And I think we all have someone like this in our lives. He did this terrible thing. He's the only man I know who could do something like what he did and then you have to feel sorry for him. He's sitting on the floor against my brother's bed going, oh, I'm such a bastard. And I'm nine years old sitting next to him going, oh, no, you, you know, you're all right. You know, you're all right. <laughs> and he took me to the shops to this big sort of, you know, it was the early days of those sort of big malls and he bought me a new alarm clock. Then he also, so also the sort of guy who could buy himself a present after himself a present, after doing something like that. And he bought this little placard from this shop, the Granny May's shop. It was this little thing that you can put on your desk, triangular, and it gives you a little note of encouragement. And it's one of my favourite details of this story is that it would sit there on his desk and it said, keep your temper, no one else wants it. <laughs> and I just go, that's the most pathetic thing in the entire world. And, uh, and at the end of that day... At the end of that day, uh, my mum came home from work and I remember sitting on her bed, on my mum and dad's bed and, uh, and saying to her as she came home from work, I looked at her and I was still so worried and I said, I said to her, so um, are, are you like, are you and dad going to get divorced? Like, are, are you going to leave dad? And she looked at me and this was her moment to say, don't be silly, you know, these things just, it'll all blow over, these things happen, you know. And she, but she looked at me and she went, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, that's great, thanks, Mum. Uh, 
Yeah, you have a good Christmas too. This has been fun. Uh, and so that was, I still look back in my household now, and the last, I mean, not the last thing, but what I also want to say is that I had a really happy childhood. And there's a, you know, I pro- if the worst thing that ever happened is your dad smashed your alarm clock, you know, you had a, you had a really good childhood. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it's, it's one of these things, like, and my mum and dad are still together, by the way. And, uh, and so... I look back now on that story and I think of that idea that, yes, it was the fact that, you know, I, I should have in so many ways. I mean, you can't blame yourself. It was clearly my dad's fault, all right? <laughs> but I look back on it and the thing is I love, I, you know, it's the first, I told that story this morning to the, ki- the kids group that I talked to just to see if it would actually work tonight. And, uh, and, then, so, and then the thing is I, what I realise when I tell a story is I realised that's just what I love. I love stories, and stories are what we're made of. And as a writer, yeah, sure, you do get, you can get so bogged down. And talking to John Boyne today about, you know, the people who hate you on Twitter and the people who are, you know, the, you know, people who are disappointed in my new book or don't think it's up to the last book or don't, you can get so bogged down in all of those things. But you can get, I get bogged down in other things too. Reading too, well, I wouldn't say, you can never read too much to your kids. Uh, or surfing too much and all of those sorts of things. And I do let all of those things distract me. All right? and, uh, and I, but I get to a point all the time where you let it distract you, you let it distract you, and then finally, finally you sit down and you say, well, what is the thing you love? What is the thing you love? And I sit down and then I say, all of this procrastination, all of this distraction, the people who love me, the people who don't love me, the people who think I'm mediocre, none of it matters because now I'm here and now is the time. So do it now. And I do. But after about 15 minutes, if it's going crap, <laughs> I go and watch Chariots of Fire. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. You can spend more time with Marcus tomorrow. He's going to be in conversation with Charlotte Graham McClay in the morning at 8.30. Is that right? Seems ridiculously early. Is it in the evening? Oh, it's at 8.30 p.m. <laughs> Go both times. <laughs> See who's there. I think that'd be great. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much, Marcus. All right, our next writer is Tina Makariti. She's of Ngāti Tūwhari Toa, Te Atiawa, Ngāti Rangatahi, Pākehā, and according to family stories, Moriori descent. Tina writes essays, novels, and short fiction, and her latest novel is The Imaginary Lives of James Pornicki, which was long-listed for this year's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. And alongside Witi Ihimaira, she is co-editor of Black Marks on the White Page, which is an anthology celebrating Māori and Pacific writing. And as well as a shelf full of prizes for her work, Tina also has a PhD in creative writing from Victoria University and teaches creative writing at Massey in Palmerston North. Would you please give a warm welcome to Tina Makareti. <laughs> I distracted myself. Um, awesome. Well done, me. Um, Great start. Um, ko te mihi tuatahi ki ngā tangata whenua o tēnei rohi ko kaitahu ko kāti mamoe ko waitaha tēnei taku mihi ki a koutou um, i ngā hau e whā 
hoki tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Apologies. <laughs> and now I need to drink some. That was my magician's trick that went really badly. Um, so when we talk about the olden days, we tend to imagine that back then people weren't as busy or messy or distracted as us. And it's true, they had more time on their hands. They didn't have the technology we have, though they had a heck of a lot of technology, more than we tend to think. While I was researching my novel, The Imaginary Lives of James Pornicki, I discovered that this is, in many ways, quite a lot like the present. In fact, I think many of our preoccupations and distractions are simply the most recent manifestation of some of the entertainments of those good old days. For three years, I submerged myself in the sights and sounds of Victorian London through my research, which in itself is a kind of distraction. Ironically, some of the best research about Victorian London came fortuitously and incidentally through Twitter, the most contemporary of distracting mediums, where one can find Twitterstorians explicating the most precise and strange corners of history with stories that are invariably hilarious when they are not shocking or depressing. For example, it is through Twitter that I learned about the Tiffany effect, which is the belief that something is more modern than it actually is. The idea is exemplified in the fact that there is no way a writer could name an historical character Tiffany because nobody would believe it's an oldie-timey name. Yet, in actual fact, the name Tiffany dates from the 13th century and was traditionally given to girls born on the 6th of January, the Feast of the Epiphany. So, Tiffany born on the Epiphany. (laughs) The name derives from a Greek word, theophania, which originally meant manifestation of God. What the Tiffany effect demonstrates is that when writing historical fiction, one has more to deal with than simply historical accuracy. The writer must also mediate people's expectations and preconceived ideas about what history was like. It's not unusual to be told something is anachronistic when it is not. It just seems that way because we don't expect history to be so modern. For example, London has always been a diverse city, probably since before Tiffany was a funky new name around the village. And British historians have plenty of archaeological and historical evidence of that ethnic diversity. But readers and audiences will still protest if their British historical stories aren't as white as they think they should be. The surprisingly modern part of history that I want to talk about is the entertainment industry, the heart of distraction. And I want to draw some kind of imaginary connecting line between Victorian London and the Kardashians, if I may. It doesn't have to be the Kardashians. It could be My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding or Love Island or Married at First Sight. Any kind of reality TV that has very little to do with reality. Keep that in mind. Distraction was big business for the Victorians. In my novel, a young Māori man goes on display in the Egyptian hall, Piccadilly, and this was a pretty common scenario. Not for Māori, perhaps, but for any type of person who was categorised as irregular in some way. Exhibition halls were places frequented by everyone from royalty. Queen Victoria, Prince Albert and the Duke of Wellington were known to be very fond of the exhibitions. To the poorest citizen who could scrape together the fee... But back then, exhibition spaces were not demarcated as they are now. 
Art, ethnological artifacts, archaeological curiosities, light shows, humans, animals, anything deemed strange or dazzling or abnormal or a great achievement would be exhibited alongside other seemingly unrelated things. Spectacle was the objective, so the stranger the mix, the better. And I, I didn't realise as I was writing this that we would be um, in this wonderful museum as I talked about this. So, kanui te mihiki te farihuki. Let us imagine the wares of monster mongers and other retailers of strange sites and be aware some of these descriptions are accurate and some of them are not, but they are the titles that were used anyway. There were giants and giantesses, boneless people, little people, two-headed men, three-breasted women, Siamese twins, learned, wonderful, educated pigs, many versions of the missing link ranging from baboons and chimpanzees to bearded ladies and hirsute children, and even hairy, though not profoundly so, men play-acting the part. Waxworks and clockworks, automaton speaking, playing harpsichord, writing or playing chess, hot air balloons, paintings and etchings and sculptures, moving pictures, magic lanterns, shadow plays, mechanical theatres and transparencies, panoramas featuring wonders of the world, cycloramas and dioramas, optical and spectral illusions, effigies of humans, great and freakish, caricatures, orreries and taxidermied or preserved species, Napoleon's carriage, Mexican lithographs, Mexican people, living skeletons, mermaids, Laplanders with their reindeer, Ojibwe people, Aztec Lilliputians, some Chinese things, some Indian things, and people of those varieties, whale bones, learned cats, portraits made of hair and embroidered classic paintings, peep shows but not what you think, koi koi women and bushmen, Inuit people referred to as Eskimos, Noble savages of all varieties, Mohawk, Cherokee and Iroquois people, Omae from Tahiti, and occasionally young, idealistic and clever Māori boys who were after a good education. It's not like the exhibitions were without critics, but they were very popular and eventually sold themselves as educational too. Pseudoscience, or even real science, was employed to great effect. So the great and the good and the not-so-good of London flocked to these shows. But what has that got to do with the Kardashians? Both are spectacle, yes, the things we use to distract ourselves. But live human exhibition, no matter how weird the other exhibits got, was the strangest and most reprehensible. I wanted to figure out what the audience got from it. And eventually, through other writers and theorists more clever than me, I came to understand that the exhibitions were like a Victorian version of reality TV, where you get to watch the other behaving in ways you find odd, or in ways you judge as abnormal, and I realised I do it too. I've watched the Kardashians for the pure spectacle of it, for the oddness of overpumped lips and hips, the strangeness of money to burn, exhibition, the strangeness of exhibitionism, of private arguments made public. 
Reality TV contains our human exhibitions caged in our televisions, wearing Versace animal print and MAC tribal war paint, simultaneously unsettling us and making us feel more firm in our world, in the real world. Perhaps this is the great illusion, and maybe we get from it what the Victorians got from their exhibitions, the sense that we are regular and normal, that we don't differ from each other that much. I mean, the neighbours are way better off than us, but they're not Kardashian rich. And it all distracts us for a while in a way that is pleasant, but also slightly uneasy, as if we're doing something we know is not exactly good for us. Kia ora. Thank you, Tina. That's superb. Tina is appearing with three other writers in History Sent on Sunday morning at 11.30 and then with a bunch of us uh, in the afternoon on Sunday at 1.30 in a session called Dear Motherhood. All right. John Boyne comes to us from Dublin. He's written 11 novels for adults, six for younger readers, plus a collection of short stories. His 2006 novel, many of you will know, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. It was a huge hit, and it sold more than 10 million copies worldwide and has been adapted for film and theatre and ballet and opera. John has won three Irish Book Awards as well as many international literary awards, and his novels are published in more than 50 languages. He also reviews books for the Irish Times. He's been a judge for literary awards in Ireland and Canada. And in 2012, John was awarded the Hennessy, I'm sorry, the Hennessy Literary Hall of Fame Award for his whole body of work. Delightfully, his very first novel published in 2000 was called The Thief of Time. To hear about his relationship with distraction, please welcome John Boyne. Thanks very much. I bring greetings from all the people of Ireland, all of whom were very happy to get rid of me. Um, until you've had five million people come to an airport and push you onto a plane, and you haven't lived. So um, I'm going to read my little piece about distraction. It's going to sound at the start like I'm just doing a shameless plug for my new book. It's, not going, it's, it's going to hit the word distraction at some point. Um, that book is available, however, in hardback, paperback. <laughs> Ebook and also a lovely audio version, and wherever books are sold. Um, like like most writers, uh, I think I am essentially a very solitary person. I like to be at home. I'm not much of a socializer. I don't have any friends, and in general, I prefer to be with my family than with anybody else. Where I live in Dublin, my parents live about ten minutes away from my house. And my sisters and my niece live halfway between us, and we call it the Boyne Triangle. I try not to stray too far outside of that triangle because within its angles I feel at my most safe. Although it is lovely to be here in Dunedin, I should say. Um, But the world has a way of getting in on you sometimes and making you feel very unsafe indeed. Last month I published my sixth novel for young readers and my 17th in total, a book called My Brother's Name is Jessica. It tells the story of a 13-year-old boy, Sam, who's embarrassed, confused, and even horrified when the person he's always known as his 17-year-old brother, Jason, announces that he believes he's really a girl and wishes to explore this new identity. 
I wrote it as a book that would hopefully support young people who were going through gender identity issues or who knew young people who were going through gender identity issues. I wanted to tell them that while all of us are still learning about the subject and need to be educated upon it, I believed that the world is essentially a good place, that people are essentially kind, and there can be a loving society out there ready to help and embrace them. I wanted them to feel not shame or fear, but hope. To support the book, and this was my first mistake, um, to f- support the book, I wrote an article in the Irish Times, Ireland's most important newspaper, expressing thoughts upon these lines, and then went about my business, hoping that readers would be drawn to the novel and hopefully enjoy it. And then, if you'll forgive me, thanks to Twitter, the shit hit the fan. The first I knew of any backlash was a hashtag that appeared on social media, uh, on the social media platform, hashtag boycott John Boyne. It had been put there by somebody with a fake name and profile, so I didn't think too much about it at the time and just gone on with my work. As ever, my attention is usually focused on the next novel that I'm writing. But then my, e- my editor emailed me to say that she and some others had noticed some negative online activity and that I shouldn't worry too much about it, which of course made me worry too much about it. <laughs> Uh, The day that my article was published, my Twitter feed, which is generally built around me talking about books that I like, and for some strange reason, kitchen implements that fascinate me, was filled with comments about my attitudes, supposedly, to transgender people and my own personal character. It turned out, I wasn't aware of it, it turned out that I was transphobic, that I was a misogynist, and that I was basically Donald Trump with a better haircut. Almost everybody who messaged me pointed out that they hadn't read the novel and they wouldn't read it because it was so terrible. I needed to apologize, I was told. Nobody said who I should specifically apologize to, but I should apologize anyway. I've always been, I think, quite a thin-skinned person, Um, not so much in terms of criticisms of my novels. A bad review, for example, has never particularly bothered me, as I think a writer knows the value of their own work anyway, and they don't need to be told that it's either a masterpiece or a travesty. You just know yourself whether you've achieved artistically what you set out to achieve. No, my thin skin comes more in terms of personal abuse. Um, I don't like arguments at all. I walk away from conflict. Um, Unkind words just hit me like bullets. I'd had the occasional Twitter spat before. After watching the Finding Neverland documentary a couple of months ago, I expressed support for the two men who had been abused by Michael Jackson when they were boys, and it was as if I'd admitted to drowning puppies at birth, the way people, some people came at me. And once when I'd expressed a dislike of a new One Direction song, I was in disgrace for weeks. <laughs> If any of you are live tweeting this event, can I just say, there are, for the record, there are no bad One Direction songs. I'm not going through that again. Those bitches be crazy. <laughs> um, but I'd never experienced anything like this. Right? For days, I lived in a state of total anxiety, unable to work, unable to read, knowing that every time I pressed that little blue app on my phone, there would be more rage directed my way. Um, I only have a a few minutes here, so I won't go into the full details of what had caused such offence, but it involved me as a non-trans person writing a book about a trans person, as if a writer does not have the right, even the responsibility, to write about lives outside of their own. Um, A hugely successful novelist emailed me to talk about what he called fascists of the imagination, who would determine what others should and should not write about in their fiction. 
What I found astonishing, though, and most upsetting, really, was that level of vitriol. I was told that I should be careful if I went out alone at night. I never go out at night anyway, so it doesn't mean... Um, where would I go? Um, and all this while, I was about to start a book tour in the UK in support of the novel. And so I did the only thing I felt I could do under the circumstances, which was that I disabled my Twitter account for a few weeks. Um, I thought that I'd miss it. I thought that I'd feel some withdrawal symptoms. But on the contrary, it actually turned out to be a blessed relief. The world, I figured, could carry on without me for a while, and strangers online could scream at each other rather than at me. Taking these distractions away, see what I did there? Uh, taking these distractions away, I managed to read an extra couple of novels because I wasn't online. I finished another chapter of the book that I'm writing, and that sick feeling in my stomach went away because in reality, if you're not aware of the nastiness, then it just actually can't really hurt you. The day before leaving Ireland to come to New Zealand, I reactivated my account after almost a month away and was glad to be able to return to the Fuhrer, uh, after the Fuhrer, um, to just talking about books and kitchen implements. Um, I still get the occasional nasty message, but I choose to ignore them and mute anybody who says anything unkind. I think if you just block somebody, you make them feel that they've got to you, but if you just mute them, then you know, they just think you're ignoring them, which is better. But that month of digital detox was actually really helpful to me, both as a person and as a writer. We speak to each other online in ways we would never address each other with in real life. Anonymity seems to give people the right to use language they would never employ in social settings and to think the worst of people they've never met in real life. We tend to give, I think in general, people the benefit of the doubt until they give us reason not to. So you might ask why I went back to Twitter if it was so good being away. I'd never really intended it to be a permanent departure, but also I don't feel that any of us, no matter what our thoughts, should be bullied into silence. We win arguments by debate, or we lose them by debate. But if we don't take part, well, we can't change anything at all. I'm going to use my social media in very different ways in the time ahead, I think. Engaging with unkindness in any form is pointless. That's a route that you can never win, and it just ends up eating you up inside. For all its flaws, social media like Twitter can be a positive place. But I suspect there'll be some times ahead where I just steer away from it for a few weeks again until I clear some space in my head. I'll read, I'll write, and I'll hang out in the Boeing Triangle, and everything will be fine there. Fantastic, John. And you can catch John again tomorrow in, convers- in conversation with Margella Cullinane. And I believe that's tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. Our fifth writer tonight is Clementine Ford. She's a Melbourne writer, speaker, and feminist thinker. She writes a column for fifth. There's no other kind of feminist, really, is there? Oh, not anymore. No, it's a column. Do you still write for Daily Life and a contributor to The Age and the... You can. That what, that's okay. Ignore everything that I've said apart from she's awesome. So Clementine is still full of fire and also humour, both, both of which are incredibly wonderful tools for laying bare the issues that affect women and people of all genders. Her work challenges the issues of men's violence against women, rape culture and gender warfare, and her comedic take on sexism has also earned her a re- reputation as a highly accomplished satirist. Her first book, Fight Like a Girl, was an 
instant bestseller when it was published in 2016, and her new book is Boys Will Be Boys. Fighting for equality is a fairly big job. Smashing the patriarchy takes a lot of time, and Clementine is incredibly focused. So let's find out what the distractions are. Please welcome Clementine Ford. That was totally my fault. I resigned from Fairfax in spectacular fashion. No, well, because I didn't update my bio. Um, thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you also to the incredible writers that I'm sharing the stage with tonight. It's been a pleasure to listen to your stories. Uh, before I begin, I'd just like to say kia ora, and I'd like to uh, pay my respects and acknowledge the mana whenua o otapati. Did I say that right? Oh, I was so nervous about it. Um, the Kaitahu, the Kati Mamoe, and the Waitaha. So thank you so much for having me here on your land. I appreciate it. Um, distraction. Like too many people, I've had terrible habit of going to bed with my phone. Huddled under the sheets, I scroll through my various feeds and fall into internet rabbit holes that take my Google search history into some seriously weird places. A sample. Things to do in Dunedin. <laughs> Afraid of nothing. I don't even know what that one means. Megan, baby, calm. Weather, Dunedin. Ben Drybergen, survivor, bad winner. Harry Styles, Met Gala. Harry Styles, bisexual. Harry Styles, please bisexual. <laughs> the other night, I found myself reading an article about the royal baby. Megan and Harry had fronted up to the press, her resplendent in a white dress that showed perfectly the swell of a postpartum belly. No, most women can't leave the hospital in their skinny jeans. And even if they could, who would want to when they've either had their stomach cut open or they're still leaking blood and fluids like it with the Battle of Winterfell? <laughs> so there she was, the proud mum and her beaming husband, talking about how transformative the experience was and how she was so lucky to have the world's two best guys. The baby, she said, was a dream. He has the sweetest temperament, she said. He's really calm. Oh, Megan, I thought, you blessed, really, really good-looking, effervescent antidote to the British aristocracy and its nonsense protocols. How little you know. <laughs> I remember bringing my own small creature home from the hospital back in August 2016. It had been a long labour, horrible in lots of ways, as most childbirth is. Seven hours of excruciating pain, followed by the sweet relief of an epidural, and another nine hours of numbed contractions. We need to get the baby out now, they said, as a horde of doctors and midwives marched into the room. There I was on my knees, screaming into the portal that separates this world from the next and doing all I could to bring my baby across its divide. Afterwards, my partner asked me, how did you know how to do that? I didn't, I replied. This proved a good portent to most of the days of motherhood that would follow. I didn't know how to do anything, and learning on the job was, to be frank, terrifying. It still seems completely crazy to me that hospitals full of medical professionals who all swear to the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm have no problem with handing a tiny helpless human to a pair of basic idiots like we were, ushering us out the door and saying, good luck, we need your bed for someone else. But there we were, sent home to figure it out. I remember gingerly walking up the stairs when we got home from the hospital, the feeling of being horribly winded still lingering, 
Lying on my bed and gazing down at the wrinkled, inscrutable being before me, I thought to myself, I've made a terrible mistake. (laughs) Perhaps the biggest surprise to me was that I wasn't allowed to sleep. I knew that babies rarely slept or slept sporadically and at odd hours of the day. But I didn't fully appreciate, couldn't fully appreciate, that when people say that babies mean you never sleep again, that you actually literally do never sleep again. In preparation for the baby's arrival, I had bought a monstrously expensive and elaborate baby hammock that my friend's child had just loved. He'll sleep in that, I thought, and that will leave me time to potter around and get some work done. Maybe I'll learn a language. (laughs) And become proficient in French or Spanish. Oh yes, I'd say, I learned to hablas while I was beatifically wafting around our neat apartment that never smelled like baby poo and which I never looked at my partner and thought, I hate you. (laughs) Reality was a rude shock. My baby hated the fancy hammock, preferring instead to sleep and remain calm only when attached to me at all times. I succumbed to a baby carrier and the hammock sat there gathering dust and holding piles of laundry until I finally sold it a few months later. I found the buyer on Facebook, a social media platform that had taken on different significance to me as a new mother. So this is how my son and I spent our first year together. In the early weeks of his life, during the hell of cluster feeding and numerous nighttime wakes, I would lie with him cuddled to my chest and quietly suckling while I scrolled through my phone. Is anyone awake? I asked in the online mothers group I had joined. And there they were, hands holding mine in the dark, women around the country reaching out to check in, answer questions and reassure each other. Is this normal? I asked repeatedly. Yes, they soothed me. It's normal. You're in the trenches now, but the dawn is coming. Outside, the 4am street sweeper would rumble past every day, marking another night about to end, and another day trying to fake that I knew what I was doing. In those empty, in-between hours, my milk keeping my baby alive and making him feel safe, so safe, calm, sweet-tempered, I know that now I would keep scrolling. I read long-form pieces about literary scandals or tricksters, stories with twists and turns, articles about ghost sightings and other magical things. I did a lot of online shopping. There is nothing nicer as a new mother than receiving little parcels in the mail. It doesn't matter what they are. I once bought an ear cleaner. (laughs) It didn't work, but I enjoyed picking it up from the post office. I took photos of my beautiful baby, recording each milestone along the way and uploading them faithfully to Facebook, where I just knew every single person I'd ever met would be gagging for more updates and couldn't wait to fawn over him the way I'd finally learned to do. I also wrote because I'm a writer and writing was how I figured out what was happening to my heart and my mind, this new plane of existence in which I was suddenly not the most important person in my life and I finally understood what it meant to know without question that you would die for this person, that you could, if needed, lift a car with your bare hands to release them from beneath it, that you would walk through fire to get to them and make whatever bargain you had to do had to with whatever demon demanded it to ensure that the fae would never come for them. I wrote articles and thoughts on my phone, my baby strapped to my front in his carrier, 
our lifesaver. And I traipsed through the neighborhood while he slept or snuggled or just observed this new world that he was in, safe in the warmth of my chest and me tapping away on a phone held out in front of me. The phone, the phone, the phone, the screens, the phone and the screens that we're all taught to avoid, that they're distractions, that we must not participate in them, that we must be present. The phone and the screens that kept me connected to the world when life and motherhood were at risk of making me feel extremely disconnected from it. The phone and the worlds it holds within it were a lifesaver to me as it is to millions of other new and old mothers around the world. Get off the phone, we're told. Focus on your children. Connect, connect, connect. They don't realise that this is what we're so often doing, us mums with our heads buried in a phone. We're asking questions about if this or that is normal. We're reading articles about the mental load or how to nurture healthy emotions in toddlers. Sometimes we're writing those articles. I think it's impossible to be truly distracted from your children. That invisible cord is strong. I often think of it like this, that my son is a computer program or a tab open in my brain, and even when I'm looking at something else, he's always there running in the background. There in the screen, I have found my people. I have stored memories of my son. I have recorded moments I might otherwise forget. This is the inverse of distraction. It's connection, even if other people don't understand it. So after two weeks away, I'm heading back home on Monday. I miss my son dreadfully, as I always always do. But every night, I send him a video telling him about my day. He likes the videos better than Skype or FaceTime because he can watch them over and over. He sends one back and I do the same. He is the greatest gift of my life. I could never regret him. He could never be a mistake. And nothing could ever distract me from that. Thank you. It was beautiful, thank you. Clementine will be uh, doing a session with Lizzie Marvely tomorrow. It's at 1.30, and then in conversation with me at 5.30, and also doing the Dear Motherhood session on Sunday morning, at Sunday afternoon, at, I don't know. Have a, you've got a program, I don't know why I'm telling you things. Anywho, so we have one right at left, and we started with a poet, so let's finish with a poet from the UK. Akala is a poet and award-winning hip-hop artist and a writer and a social entrepreneur who fuses his unique sound with fierce lyrical storytelling. He headlines his own tours and also works with artists like Jay-Z and MIA, Christina Aguilera, Susie Sue, and at festivals like Glastonbury and South by Southwest. In 2009, Akala famously launched the hip-hop Shakespeare Company, which has seen him work with collaborators like Sir Ian McKellen and Ed Sheeran. He talks about youth, race, British African, Caribbean culture and the arts. He's written for all kinds of people, uh, for The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The Independent, and he holds an honorary doctorate from the Oxford Brooks University. His recently published memoir, Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire, is a Sunday Times bestseller. So you would think that with all of that, there would be no time for distraction, but let's find out if there is. Would you please give a hugely warm welcome to Akala. Good evening. Distraction is biting off more than you can chew. Like me agreeing to come to New Zealand and Australia when I'm in the middle of a novel deadline, 
swearing to myself I was going to hand the book in before I got here. Of course, that didn't happen. I'm behind and I've spent the whole last three weeks wondering about that deadline. Distraction is about the use and management of time. It's about relationships, family, wonderful or woeful, help or hindrance. I'm not a particularly religious man, at least not in an Abrahamic sense, but when it was said to me that friends are God's way of apologising for your family, I'm sure I am not the only person in this audience who can relate to that sentiment. Because when it comes to distraction, there are three different types of people in the world. The worst kind, unfortunately. The first kind. People I'm going to call energy suckers. And unfortunately, I'm sure we all have people like that in our life. Maybe we've even been that person to other people at some point in our life. But people that come into your life and it's as if they were sent just to distract you. That's all they do. Whenever you meet them, they've never got anything constructive to say. They literally exist in your life just to distract you from your work. Luckily, you've got a second type of person. And these people are energy givers. These are the people that perhaps you meet in your life and every time you go to them, you come away feeling a little bit more fulfilled, a little bit more happy, a little bit more knowledgeable, and you wonder perhaps maybe are you this person's energy sucker? (laughs) And then there is the third kind of person A person with whom you have a reciprocal energetic relationship. People who you mutually drain and fill one another up simultaneously. And probably this is the way good marriages work. You know, sometimes you drain one another, sometimes you fill one another up. And sometimes we do all three together. Distraction is about an investment in people. Social media, which has come up a lot tonight, you know, embodies all of this. You know, is it greatest tool for enlightenment? I have a whole folder of research that I've got from Twitter. Thousands of articles that I never would have come across if it wasn't for for Twitter. And then I have had, you know, months where I'm just like, I have to leave Satan's spawn alone. Because if I go back on there, I might throttle someone. I lost four days in an argument last year about whether or not a British actor was qualified to play Harriet Tubman. And that's when I said, I really need to have a long time off of Twitter. And when I say I lost four days, I don't mean I did an hour a day. I mean, I was awake for four days on Twitter having this argument with people that I've never met in my entire life that I don't know from Adam. But sometimes you need distractions. There is such a thing as constructive distraction, or I'm going to call the tyranny of no distraction. I work a lot in prisons, and when you talk to prisoners, particularly prisoners who've been in solitary, you get a real sense of what it's like when you have no distraction. You can literally turn a human being insane clinically just by removing all potential for distraction it takes a very very strong person to come through that so i would say keep surfing yeah because you need those distractions go mountain climbing do whatever it is you do that you find kind of your other space for me the gym is where i find my distraction you know i go and I just you know I kick the bag even though i fractured my foot two days before i came out here speaking of distractions i fractured my foot and thought i'd have to cancel the whole tour luckily i didn't But even in my fractured foot state, I'll go and I'll exercise on the bag and I feel like it gives me a little bit of space to contemplate life, a little bit of space away from everything. It's my way of meditating because I'm too distracted to meditate properly. And coming back to writing, when I was researching this book, not to plug, but, you know, it is available in all good bookstores. um, I read a quote from one of my favorite writers in the world, uh, Toni Morrison, and she said, racism is a distraction. It prevents you from doing your work. 
know, someone comes along, says, you're not really a human being. You go away, as I did. My first original subject that I studied was pre-colonial African history. I did a lecture at the Oxford Union about this, which you can watch, by the way, not to plug. But, um, well, no, to plug. Um, you go away, you dig up all this stuff. You say, no, actually, I really am a human being. Look, here's all this evidence. My ancestors were not as savage as you say they were. Blah, 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 blah. And she says, well, this, it's a waste of time because there'll always be one more thing. And I read that quote and it really embodied, I suppose, my journey to even writing the book that I've written. Often when I talk about the things I talk about, people say to me, you're always going on about this race stuff. As if, you know, when I was born or when I was six years old, I said, you know what I want to do in the future? I want to go and lecture ignorant people about racism. What a great job. I mean, it's, it's every young boy's dream. Yeah? In fact, when I was a young child, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, you know, I was pretty good at science. I was pretty good at maths, you know, and I'm saying this in context because it is important to the story. I'm not just saying this to show off. You know, I took my maths GCSE a year early. I went to Royal Institution, mathematics, master classes, and I was doing okay in school. When I was seven, you know, I was reading Lord of the Rings at home at this point. A teacher decided to put me in a group for kids that do not speak English, a special needs group. Um, and in this special needs group, you know, we got hot chocolate and biscuits. So naturally, being seven years old, I didn't want to leave the group. Um, I did not realize at the time I was being rewarded to fail. Now, I was put in this group. My parents were not informed because obviously I didn't really have special needs. My mum is a bit of a swearer and a bit of a shouter. Uh, had she have known, she would have gone down the school and made up lots of noise. But luckily for me, I was the recipient of a very hard-won tradition. I went to a special Saturday school, British Caribbean Pan-African Saturday school. And my Saturday school, which was like an extra community monitor on my behavior, noticed that there was something wrong with my behavior on a Saturday. Went to my mum and they said, look, there's something wrong with Kingsley. We don't know what it is that's going on. You know, but they eventually came down the school. They noticed I was in this special group. They pulled me out. And in a sense... Not to give this teacher, you know, all the credit. You know, my mum went down to school afterwards. She effed and blinded a bit. And I was promptly removed from the group. But it was only as I got older, I realised the lesson that teacher was trying to teach me and the way in which she was trying to distract me. And the fact she was trying to show me, essentially, being an astronaut is not an occupation for somebody like you. She was trying to distract me from my work. Show me that me being an astronaut threatened who she was and her sense of identity because her sense of identity was related to me. And unfortunately in life... There are many distractions we cannot always overcome. Yeah, and we cannot always dodge. There are distractions that come at you and you sort of have to face them. And so I suppose for me, the way I try to deal with distraction, both in personal life, in public life, in political life, is with my favorite Chinese philosophy book, which I'm going to recommend to you all, a book called The Tao Te Ching, which is one of the oldest books in the world. And lots of people say it's the wisest book ever written. It's just 81 short verses on how to live life. And that book is all about Essentially, dealing with distraction it is about finding balance. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Ngamihi nui to Akala. His session earlier today was sold out. I think there are still tickets available for his conversation with Paula Morris tomorrow at four o'clock. So do look out for that. That is the end of our evening, kind of. Um, we are going to, the booksellers are here, the fantastic UBS booksellers are at the back of the room. Our writers are available to sign just only the copies that you buy, because um, that's fair. So, um, so please do go and buy 
buy buy copies of all of the books and uh, and these beautiful people will come and sign them to you and maybe have a chat with you along the way. And you have two more really packed, rollicking, romping days of the Dunedin Readers and Writers Festival, Writers and Readers Festival. So um, please do get out and support it and enjoy it. There's so much to be seen. I want you to put your hands together, please, and thank Chris Teese, Marcus Zuzak, Tina Makariti, John Boyne, Clementine Ford, and Akala Namihinui. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation. Mm-hmm.